So hey, it's Zane Horowitz and our crew at both the Oregon and Utah Poison Centers today for the September 2017 Toxicology Journal Club. And today we're, we're talking about a couple of chemicals, mostly trichloroethylene, known as TCE, and perchloroethylene, known as PERC. Um, and sort of in case people who are listening to this contemporaneously, I've been watching the Ken Burns series on Vietnam. Many people know that the jump-off point for was go to base camp originally. The big one in South Carolina was the famous Paris Island, and the one in North Carolina was a place called Camp Lejeune, um, which is most of the back end of the article is going to talk about the major contamination of both these chemicals in Camp Lejeune and all the uh, problems that have been uncovered since then. But I'm going to start out with some basic, more historical articles back from the 70s, many years ago, on what we thought we knew usually about trichloroethylene, sort of the association most people think when they think of TCE is something called degreaser's flush. So we uh, dug deep and found the original degreaser's flush paper to start off with, and we'll have uh, Tyler tell us a little bit about that one. Okay, so uh, yeah, this article is from 1974, Degreaser's Flush, um, and the basic approach here was just um, using TCE vapor um, in a vapor chamber, exposing a number of patients to this vapor for uh, a certain period of time. The time varies, the parts per million of the vapor varies, um, and then subsequently exposing them to different kinds of alcohol. Um, the, I guess the basic background is that uh, degreasers or workmen who work with this kind of uh, uh, degreasing, uh, what is it, that's a hydrocarbon, um, would then go to the neighborhood tavern, have a beer or two, and then they would end up having this flush, uh, that their skin would flush. And so um, they're just kind of experimentally approaching how that happens. So um, the methods is a little bit um, here and there. Um, they have seven men and three women um, who do this over a period of, of days. Um, the women are never exposed to alcohol. The men are to varying degrees, um, sometimes in hilarious ways. Um, and then the alcohol that they use is also inconsistent, sometimes beer, sometimes vodka. Um, and so, just to get into it a little bit, um, just a little bit about TCE overdose, I guess. Um, just within the very first paragraph, uh, talks about if you had a, a full-on overdose, you would have CNS depression, renal injury, hepatic injury, and dermatitis. Um, and the dermatitis was thought to be due to some sort of defattening action of this hydrocarbon. Um, so... What they ended up finding essentially um, is that within a period of about a half hour after these patients were exposed to varying uh, degrees of hydro this hydrocarbon TCE, um, they would end up having this flush. It's usually upper body, affects their face, chest, um, uh, their back, upper back. Um, but they early on had some pretty significant challenges, I guess, with, um, with the methods or the protocol of um, this exposure. So it was supposed to be controlled and they were given um, what they deemed to be a normal amount that a workman would have during lunch, which they was a quart of beer, I guess. Well, this is Milwaukee after all. Yeah. Um, and this was supposed to be a non-intoxicating a non, uh, dose. But on page four, um, under, the, under the results, um, analysis of the post-exposure breast samples for TCE obtained during the first week of vapor exposure studies indicated that several subjects were not following instructions and were drinking large quantities of alcohol in the evening hours. Skipping a couple sentences, at 12.45 a.m. on a Tuesday morning, eight hours after his first exposure to 200 um, ppm for seven and a half hours of vapor, um, this subject headed... Uh, the same subject telephoned to report that he had gone to a tavern at 10 p.m. in the evening before and had drunk four beers plus one scotch whiskey, following which the flush phenomenon began. He then drank two additional beers and the flushing continued for several hours. Um, 
and then it goes on to describe. He was checking in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it goes on to describe his intoxicated state. Um, so then, just in this middle um, column, I guess there was no change in blood pressure, pulse rate, um, EKG findings, CBC or analysis or uh, metabolic metabolic panel. Um, what they found is that, generally speaking, about a half hour after they had um, some kind of alcohol, they got the flush, and about 60 minutes later, it went away. Um, they didn't really describe any other negative or untoward effects. Um, but in the, the comment section, um, what they say is that... So the dermal response did not occur in female subjects, nor were they experimentally challenged with alcohol. So no alcohol, no flush. Um, like I say, the, the numbers of uh, participants is really low. So um, insufficient information to allow more than speculation about the mechanism responsible for the dermal lesions in this case. Um, and then they say uh, high TCE Blood concentrations alone do not explain the dermal phenomenon, as it was possible to elicit dermal response days following the last exposure, a time when only trace amounts of TCE were circulating. So even days after um, them having this exposure, if they didn't have alcohol, they didn't have a flush, and then they could have near or zero TCE in their blood, and then they would still have the flush once they had alcohol. Um, and then just the second to the last paragraph, um, we're aware of one case of TCE flush, which occurred in a volunteer subject six weeks following five days of exposure to TCE at 200 um, ppm. This subject had not consumed any alcohol during or for a five-week interval following his TCE exposure, and then in the course of five hours, he consumed 21 bottles of beer and developed TCE flush. Um, and then their conclusion is that it merits further study. Yeah, of which really was never done anywhere near as good as, as this original study. So right, it wasn't a big study. It took mostly the men got the beer, got exposed, and got the beer. They kind of went out of the way. I love it. Every time they wrote a quarter of beer, they put in parentheses Schlitz to let you know they were in they were in Milwaukee. Um, they must appear about five or six times throughout the, the the paper. And then they waited five hours after they were exposed, and they all got facial flushing and. Although I don't have a color version of the article, there's pictures of the different uh, people who participated with red flush faces. So the bottom line, and coined the term degreases flush, is if you work with a solvent like TCE and then you go out and drink, you will very likely get this facial flushing, which will get better over time. It's not permanent, but it's certainly annoying to some people, although it didn't stop some of the people, even though they knew it was going to happen, from going out to, as they say, the tavern and drinking a six-pack or so. Zane, this is not a disulfiram-like reaction. They're not getting other no. systemic symptoms. No, it's no, yeah. cutaneous finding. Yeah, it's not just simply inhibiting aldehyde dehydrogenase, which is <coughs> what we expect with disulfiram, where they get nausea and vomiting and metallic tastes and all sort of lousy feelings. So they get the negative feedback not to drink. Obviously, didn't stop the people who called in from drinking as much as they did. They just got red-faced, and that was that was it. Um, so something in it, something perhaps a downstream enzymatic pro change that occurs, because even if they after they stop exposure, it seems to happen hours, or if not days later, um, so something more than just the TCE concentration in their body is causing the problem. So there was, you know, at that point, TC was still widely used in the 70s, and it was known to cause really just this phenomenon. There was another cutaneous problem with it as well, and we're going to let our other medical student, Victoria, tell us about this other paper also from the mid-70s. Yeah, so the second paper is titled Cutaneous Manifestations of Trichloroethylene Toxicity. Um, and it's uh, a series of four cases describing um, what happens uh, with TCE toxicity. So um, kind of starts out talking about a little bit of the background. Again, all of these um, cases were um, gentlemen who worked in um, industry where they are cleaning metals or um, using this solvent. Yeah. So um, 
The first case is a 30-year-old mechanic, um, and he was hospitalized because of generalized dermatitis, um, which began as this dry, chapped skin on the hands and forearms, and then progressed to generalized um, eruption. He also complained of hoarseness, muscle weakness, difficulty swallowing, um, and he did complain of feeling very ill after drinking alcohol, um, including burning eyes, headaches, um, impotency, and sleeplessness uh, or sleepiness while at work. Um, and he worked in a machine shop um, where he used the uh, TCE to clean metal parts. Ventilation very poor in this area, um, and so he was inhaling a lot. Um, so his rash is described um, more as this generalized scarlinitiform eruption. Um, characterized by these erythematous follicular papules. Um, and he also had notably enlarged parotid glands and some um, periorbital edema, but no other abnormalities on exam. Um, lab testing for him was all uh, within normal, except for um, his levels of uh, trichloroethanol was 2.6 milligrams per milliliter, normal being none, and his urine trichloroacetic acid was 2.8 milligrams per milliliter. And those were measured for five days after exposure to the solvent. So this show you it stays in the system. In fact, trichloroethanol is the prime metabolite of trichloroacetic acid or TCE. Um, the second case was a 44-year-old factory worker who noticed a blistering rash on his forearms three weeks prior to admission. Um, this rapidly progressed to generalized pruritic erythematous eruption. He, for his job, cleaned bomb casings with various chemicals, um, and TC was found to be one of them. He was complained of being dizzy and sleepy at work, um, and, and then when he would go home, um, uh, I believe complains of, um, or some of these other gentlemen complain of uh, insomnia and irritability at home. Um, so on admission, this patient, um, his exfoliative dermatitis uh, was generalized and spared only his palms and his soles. Um, he did have several small non-tender posterior cervical and inguinal nodes, no conjunctivus um, uh, or parotid enlargement or other neurologic abnormalities. Um, and his um, serum trichloroethanol level was 14 milligrams per uh, 100 mils, and the urine trichloroacetic acid level was just read as positive when measured four days after last exposure. The third case is a 49-year-old factory worker who um, used TC to um, degrease uh, uh, tankers, and he described feeling wooziness while at work and irritable and having insomnia at home. His dermatitis began on his hands and became generalized, um, and he was admitted to the LA County USC Medical Center. Um, he did have... Um, a generalized scarliniform eruption as well, and then more purpuric macules um, at the medial aspect of his thighs, distal portion of the lower extremities. He had a few petechial lesions on the on his hard palate, and then notably had a little bit of um, hepatomegaly, but no other organomegaly. Um, he also um, had elevated um, LFTs, ALKFOS, um, bilirubin, and LDH, which normalized after six weeks. Um, and then otherwise, um, yeah, his um, urine and blood collected nine days after exposure uh, showed no detectable level of, of TCE. Um, and then the fourth case is an 18-year-old gentleman who presents with a blistering rash on his hands and forearms three weeks prior to admission. He had also had headache, lethargy, irritability. Um, he also complained of sore throat um, and anorexia, uh, or becoming anorexic. And he was employed in a metal plating plant where he cleaned the metal with the solvent, the solvent TCE. Um, he was febrile on admission. He had a generalized exfoliative dermatitis, which included his face, and they provide a figure of that, uh, figure one. Um, his flexural surfaces of his upper extremities bilaterally uh, were eczematized. And then he also had um, small, discrete, non-tender lymphadenopathy. He, his skin showed um, coagulus positive staph, um, Klebsiella, and Pseudomonas. He also had a throat culture done that showed Diplococcus pneumoniae and Neisseria. And then his serum trichloroethanol level was 
and the urine was 2.5 per 100 mils. So um, just the overall comment from this paper that these, um, this solvent that's been largely used to degrease de 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 metal parts also um, has been used in dry cleaning agents, um, paints, varnishes, adhesives, refrigerant, insecticide, perfumes. Um, interestingly, um, as an anesthetic, and um, trialine in Great Britain and triethylene in the U.S. Um, and it was taken off the market or out of general use about that time, time. because it actually caused trigeminal neuralgia yeah. afterwards, but not any for any of these dermatologic reasons we just talked about. Yeah, and they um, kind of note that obviously greater mm -hmm. incidence of toxic reactions were produced in the industrial um, era than... Um, than trialine used for anesthesia, and they think that's because tri trialine was 99% um, pure substance, and the commercial preparations um, were not um, chemically pure and may have had um, other uh, toxic decomposition products. Um, they go on to talk about how regulations are not always uh, rigidly followed, um, and that's why um, these gentlemen presented. Um, and then go on to describe um, that, interestingly, at work, uh, that these men will um, present as somewhat of um, like an intoxicated behavior, describing even singing on the job may occur among exposed workers. <laughs> um, and it's mostly the inhalation of the drug that uh, results in these um, findings. Um, they go on to discuss the metabolism um, um, and the products that we already um, talked about, which stay around in, uh, for about four to five days. Um, and then, interestingly, disulfiram has been shown to inhibit the metabolism of trichloroethylene. But doesn't necessarily cause a classic disulfiram reaction, which you get from an alcohol, alcohol can't be metabolized past the acid aldehyde. Formation, and that's what makes you sick. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, so um, they go on to kind of talk about acute versus chronic exposure, um, and toxic manifestations are more acute with massive inhalation, and including loss of consciousness, um, toxic hepatitis, renal damage, cardiac arrhythmias, pulmonary edema can occur. Um, and sudden death has been reported as well. And then the chronic exposure may result in more of the neuropathies, like of the cranial nerve, trigeminal anesthesia, anosmia, um, visual abnormalities. Um, and then this headache, fatigue, muscle weakness, anxiety, flushing of the face, those reactions are very um, common as well. Um, in the cutaneous manifestation section here, um, they just talk about the two different types, the ways that it can act. It can act as both a primary ir irritant and then as a sensitizer um, with the production of this generalized dermatitis. So um, it can, exactly what we talked about, dry, fissured, scaling dermatitis involving the areas of contact. And then clothing can retain levels, um, producing this defatting of the skin on pressure points. Um, and the generalized dermatitis begins with erythema, becomes papular, then vesicular and exfoliative. Um, these patients were all, um, all interestingly did show some neurasthenic complaints like dizziness, headache, weakness, impotence, fatigue. Um, and they were all, with all their skin findings, they were all placed on systemic steroids um, and had resolution of their dermatitis within three to four days. Um, histopathologically, um, there was notably um, a monocular perivascular infiltrate, but no um, leukocytoclastic um, predominance. Uh, and then they go on to talk about regulation um, in the industry um, and then uh, wrap it up with uh, how to diagnose triethylene dermatitis. Yeah, so, you know, this agent was used for very many years. It was a lot of different industries as a solvent. It was a good solvent, but people who work with it regularly had skin problems some of the time and then had flushing some of the time, and the anesthetics, when they were used in high brief concentrations, caused problems that led them to be discontinued. 
But the thing we're talking about a little bit today is what is the long-term effects from, we'll start out with occupationally being exposed and then being environmentally exposed, which is the issue in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. Um, to talk about the next thing, um, the place we'd always like to go to for these giant population-based studies where they can follow everybody and all their health problems is the Scandinavian countries. And Actually, this was of the papers we've reviewed from there before. This one's pretty good because they got four out of the five Scandinavian countries and they followed everybody for like forever. So, Mike, tell us about the occupational risk. People actually work with the product, not the environmental issues we'll talk about second. Uh, so this one is occupational exposure to trichloroethylene and perchloroethylene and the risk of lymphoma, liver, and kidney cancer in four Nordic countries published in 2013 in the Journal of Occupational and Environmental Medicine. The authors are from these various countries. Also, the second author uh, works for IARC, that is the International Agency for Research on Cancer, the agency that you'll often see, is this substance known to be carcinogenic? And they will list it, you know, as 1, 2A, 2B, 3. And they say, yes, there's evidence, or no, there's not evidence that this uh, agent can cause cancer in humans. Zane, we have to do some terminology nitpick, because sure. I was like, wait, Scandinavia versus Nordic countries. Uh -huh. <laughs> Turns out Scandinavia only includes Denmark, Norway, and Sweden, but Nordic includes Finland and Iceland, too. Got it. <laughs> so Scandinavian countries is a subset of Nordic countries. And we get Nordic, so we get even more. I don't know. And I don't know the history of that either. But I'm sure you can read further in Wikipedia. Um, so they're looking at occupational exposure to both of these agents, um, TCE, trichloroethylene, and perchloroethylene, which is also just known as tetrachloroethylene, so it's just the exact same thing with one extra chloride instead of a hydrogen on that ethylene molecule. In 2012, IARC said TCE was a group one agent, means there is sufficient evidence um, that it causes kidney cancer in humans with um, backup evidence in animals, and that Perchloroethylene, per or perk, um, is a probable carcinogen, which means there's limited human evidence, but the animal evidence is pretty good. And usually those recommendations are a little bit conservative because we'd like to reduce people getting cancer, so it's not, you know, 100% definitive that you're going to get exposed to this and you're going to get cancer in five years. That it, um, so then they wanted to look and see in this subset um, of these Nordic countries of who might develop these cancers. Some of the risks that have been established was kidney cancer, um, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a very big group of lymphomas. The only definition there is that it's not Hodgkin's, right, um, which will come up later. Liver cancer as well, and some limited evidence on other ones. Perchloroethylene, similar. Um, there's some bladder cancer, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and multiple myeloma evidence. Um, more convincing for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And of course, uh, there's some difficulty in really estimating this because in contrast to these small little case reports where you had a worker and then you had an exposure days or weeks before, this is going population-based in using registries and census data to try to estimate uh, people's exposure. But these are really cool databases. So they have an occupational cancer database that's a subset of just the cancer database. So they try to look at your occupation and your cancer and then they correlate that with census records of what your occupation was listed as. And this goes back to like 1960. The, there's a lot of epidemiologic and public health things that I'm not super familiar with and fortunately in the several places they say this has been previously described, so we don't have to wade through too much of that. But kind of what they do is if you listed dry cleaning as your occupation, at some point someone came up with these job exposure matrices based on what might be expected and said, if you were in this job, we expected you had about this much exposure. And they kind of have to spitball how much exposure um, does that mean. Later on, they say that 
maybe only 5% of those people classified that way, you know, may have had that because you work at a dry cleaner, but does that mean you're running it or you're just the owner of the business and you're not exposed or you're working at the counter or it's really hard to know. And these are from census data that's on every 10 years. So if you switch jobs after one year or nine years, they're not going to know if you're in the job for six months in 1960 and then in 1970 you had a different job did you have different things in between so it's tough to know um, and they're able to link all this data together for everybody um, from patients from 1947 all the way up to the 90s and they took subjects who were age 30 to 64 years old um, and there's different dates depending on different countries and then they also selected controls for all these two so every time they found an incident case, um, they took five control subjects who were alive and didn't have cancer and matched them by age and country and gender to see, you know, is this different from just the baseline incidence of cancer? Um, all right, the next of exposure assessment, I think we can just skip all of that. Um, they included ionizing radiation just to look at other things too. Um, under statistical analysis, I'll just point out that they also tried to, you know, you want to know if there's a dose response relationship. So if anyone should get it, it should be the highest exposed groups. And so they defined people who they think would have been in the 90th percentile or higher, higher for total cumulative exposure based on how long they worked in that industry. Now, none of this is based on like measured parts per million of where they worked or anything. It's just these industries in general in the 60s in Norway had this exposure. So it's, you know, several steps removed from actually knowing what their exposure was. Um, then most of this is going to get into a whole bunch of tables with a million different hazard ratios. Table 1, it's there on the page 395 or page 3. Um, just shows that between cases and controls, overall, things were pretty well matched as far as men and women and when they were born and which country they came from. Table 2 has, this is a new term, tertiles. We don't want quartiles. So tertiles <laughs> is by thirds. Uh, it's just a weird word. Quintiles. Quintiles, yeah, quintiles, quartiles, but tertiles. <laughs> um, that's table two you can look at. And if you see um, HR for hazard ratio, all these hazard ratios hover right around one, and they look for each one of the highest versus lowest exposure. Um, from They also had benzene and ionizing radiation just for other known carcinogens, just to kind of say, are we actually, you know, tracking something, are our estimations good? Because we know benzene causes some cancers, we know ionizing radiation does, so we should pick something up that way. You'll notice in all those confidence intervals that everything crosses one. And they don't exactly own up to that in any of the results or discussion. They say, oh, there was an increase among, you know, these separate tertiles, that it increased with higher exposure, but almost in no case did any of these hazard ratios, you know, are they above one? They all include one, saying, you know, there's no increased risk. Um, I think down in table three, this is one that they highlight on perchloroethylene in men. So it's kind of like the third section down in table three. You'll see those hazard ratios go from 0.9 to 1.7 to 1.21, and they say, this is the only thing we found, that there was a trend towards increased liver cancer in perchloroethylene um, among men. And then like, oh, that looks good, but then you look at all those confidence intervals, and they uh, all cross one, which they don't comment on in the least in their paper. And they seem to kind of gloss over the fact that nothing reached any degree of statistical significance. I think I found one thing in here that might, you know, does not include one. Um, the next table is going for just the high exposure groups. So maybe you're saying, well, it was just too diluted. We need to look at the high exposure groups. That's table four. Um, and the same thing comes up, that these hazard ratios 
all across one except for this one statistical thing of intensity times prevalence for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. It might have it for men in perchloroethylene, but then they don't really talk about that in the results. Another way to visualize this is keep going down, which is figure one on the uh, sixth page of the manuscript. You can see all of these um, graphs looking at odds ratios. Don't ask me to compare odds ratios and hazards ratios and why these are different. But you can kind of see that all of these are, even if they are not one, that those gray areas end up including one for pretty much all of them. It's just another way to visualize that. And they're looking at continuous cumulative exposure. So, you know, like an incidence rate as you go along throughout the years, too. But again, didn't show much. They say none of the slopes were significantly different from one. All right, down to the discussion. This is on page seven. Um, they say they observed some evidence of an association between liver cancer and perchloroethylene and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. But again, they're not saying did not reach statistical significance. It's kind of the, uh, we observed a trend towards significance thing that makes you die inside when they say that, right? <laughs> um, and then they didn't find it for TCE and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, multiple myeloma, or cancers of the liver or kidney. So IARC had just said that TCE is a carcinogen and kidney cancer is the one, but then this study couldn't show that at all. I did not go back and find what papers IARC used to back up the kidney cancer in humans, but obviously it wasn't Nordic country data. Um, and they said, and, and then they discussed why they think that is, and that um, there's a lot of confounding exposures. You don't know exactly who was exposed or who wasn't exposed. They're just using their occupation. Um, and they said they estimate prevalence of exposure even in those occupational groups could be as low as 5%, which is going to dilute it if only 5% of that group was exposed. It's going to be really hard to pick up a signal if 95% were not exposed. Um, and like I said before, the census is a 10-year snapshot. You don't have details of what jobs or tasks they were doing. Um, they tried to have people that they captured the longest amount of time for, and that didn't help. Um, and they noticed that laundry workers, let's see, I think the highest exposure that they had was um, smelting workers. And that laundry workers tend to have a fairly low exposure, but that kind of made up the bulk of their patients that were included. So they may not have had groups that were exposed a whole lot. And then again, the other trouble with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is that diffuse large B-cell lymphoma and follicular lymphoma and everything else are very different diseases, and it may confer a different risk for those different subtypes of cancer. Um, they couldn't control things like smoking and alcohol consumption or hepatitis, but those aren't, they didn't say, I think those would be a huge deal because they're not massive uh, increasers of risk. But in the end, even though they conclude there's that slight increased association, when I look at all those tables, all those hazard ratios cross one. And so to me, you can say there could be a slight trend if you feel comfortable using those words, but nothing the least bit conclusive by my read of so, yeah, so they didn't actually get to measure how they were exposed in the industry, but they're saying people who work in these industries, right. they're looking if you're going to go 40 years, ago. 40 years of data, they don't seem to have a higher rate of any of these four or five cancers that they looked at, even though IARC has labeled them a carcinogen or a possible carcinogen for TC and for... So that sets the stage for what happen, happens next. The next three articles are all out of ATSDR and uh, Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. I can set some of the stage for because a lot of the stuff in all three articles is the same. Basically, there were different housing tracts in Camp Lejeune uh, where people lived. There was one called Tarawa Terrace, or TT. We have a map. We have a map, if anyone's interested, of where people yeah, lived. And the other one's called Hadnot Point. And TT 
was awash in perk or tetrachloroethylene, and had not point was awash in trichloroethylene. And people who lived or worked there for any number of times, this problem was ignored, even though they knew about it for decades, until finally political pressure was placed on them, uh, perhaps precipitated by the death of the young girl of a serviceman of cancer at the age of nine, springing forth something called Ensminger's Law, uh, which was the girl's name or the, and the soldier's name. And ATSDR and a bunch of agencies went in there to study what's the long-term effects of not working with these chemicals, because nobody was working with them, but it all seeped into the groundwater, into their tap water, into their bath water. So the next three articles is basically going to say, look at what is the adverse effects of drinking and washing and bathing with this contaminated water over the course of a lifetime. And we'll look at it two or three different ways. So to start off with, Adrian is going to tell us a little bit about birth defects and childhood cancers. Yeah, this is the first of the three articles, Evaluation of Exposure to Contaminated Drinking Water and Specific Birth Defects in Childhood Cancers at the Space Camp uh, in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. This is a case control study. It was um, published in 2013, Environmental Health. And as you said before, you know, the Space Camp in North Carolina, they actually began operations in the early 1940s, um, and then 80 to 85, they started sampling um, a, pro a sampling program and discovered these volatile organic compounds were in some of the wells, um, which were passing around that map. Um, it was those two kind of, there's a place in the middle was, that was not contaminated, but the two, um, the HP and TT, um, had contaminants in their wells on sampling. Um, the primary contaminant in the TT uh, was tetrachloroethylene, um, and it was 215 parts per billion. This was from a um, solvent uh, waste disposal from this off-site um, dry cleaner, which you can see on the map there, um, really close. Um, and then the other camp, the um, HP, and the primary contaminant there was trichloroethylene, um, but they also found vinyl chloride, um, they found benzene, etc. Um, and the contamination there was from leaking underground storage tanks, uh, industrial area spills, and waste disposal sites. And just of note, both these sites are now, or the whole site actually is super fun sites. Um, so they say how there's been studies that really have looked at the association with birth defects, childhood cancers among female or children born to female workers. Um, most of this has been just like occupational studies, um, they said, but really nobody's looked um, extensively into the association between maternal exposure to these contaminants in drinking water and birth defects in childhood cancers. So that's what they were looking at. They wanted to specifically determine if maternal exposures and exposures during the first year of life um, to these contaminants in this water at Camp Lejeune um, increased the risk of neural tube defects and um, like cleft palates and childhood cancers. So they, as far as their study population, they included live births that occurred between 1968 and 1985 to mothers who reside on this base um, at any time during their pregnancy. Um, they used uh, birth certificates, certificate data to identify um, 12,493 children that were born during that time to the mothers who um, lived at the camp at the time of delivery, and then they were able to um, get another 4,000 mothers uh, through this media campaign and referral process. Um, these mothers who resided the camp at any time during their pregnancy, but then they delivered after leaving the camp. Um, and like you said, it was the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry who conducted this uh, study, and they did a telephone survey um, where they interviewed the parents of these children. Um, and they, the participation, participation rate was pretty high, it was 76%. Um, during this um, interview, they would discuss, you know, did their child have a birth defect, did they develop any cancer, but they actually made very extensive efforts to confirm all of these self-reported cases. They um, obtained a lot of vital records information, medical records, and I mean, even if they didn't have anything, um, 
any of those things to verify it, they would actually send them, pay for them to go to the doctor and like see if they actually had these things. So they did a pretty good job there. Um, so the people that were controls were survey participants um, with a live birth occurring during that time period who um, their children did not have a birth defect or childhood cancer, and they were kind of randomly selected. Um, in order to, um, you know, prevent, like, potential confounding factors or just determine these, they got a lot of parental characteristics, pregnancy history, you know, to assess for confounding, essentially. Um, the way that they um, determined exposure um, was pretty interesting. They um, conducted a historical reconstruction of contaminant levels in the drinking water, um, and they used groundwater fate and transport and water distribution system models, which sounds fancy. Um, and by, through, by using these models, they were able to um, provide monthly average estimates of the concentrations of the contaminants in drinking water that were delivered to residences. And then they used um, the residential information that was collected from um, the base family housing records and um, water modeling um, to results, and that's how they assigned the exposures. Um, I won't mention too much about data analysis, but essentially they um, were comparing exposure odds um, of verified at cases of birth defects um, and childhood cancers with controls using this logistic regression. Um, they, let's see, and they were using two criteria in particular to assess associations, the magnitude of the um, odds ratio and then this exposure response relationship, which is, they go into a little bit more, but um, essentially confidence intervals were used to indicate how precise the odds ratios were and each contaminant was evaluated separately. Um, okay, so parents of 51 um, ch case children, so 98% of the cases um, were interviewed. Um, they had 526 control children. Um, if you look in that table two, it's pretty extensive, it's the whole page, but it essentially gives you other possible risk factors. Um, and just more information about the cases. Um, in table three, you can see that the mothers of cases reported drinking more glasses of tap water per day than the mothers of the controls. Um, mothers with uh, neural tube defects and oral clefts were similar um, to the controls for frequency of showering. Um, however, more mothers of cancer cases showered over 14 times a week, so quite a bit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so for the neural tube defects and the average first trimester exposures, the odds ratio for TCE above that minimum contaminant level was 2.4. Then again, the confidence interval, interval is very wide. It was 0.6 to 9.6. Um, as far as benzene exposure um, and, let's see, um, so, yeah, for any benzene exposure, it was 4.1, that was the odds ratio, but um, in confidence interval, it's pretty big, 1.4 to 12. Um, but really, they weren't able to um, evaluate exposure response relationships in that case because there was only two cases where there was actual, they were actually in the high category or high exposure category. As far as oral clefts and on the contaminants, all the odds ratios were less than one. Um, and for childhood cancers and average first trimester exposures, um, the odds ratio for any PCE exposure is 1.6. Um, and vinyl chloride was also 1.6. Um, there's only, I think, in the... As far as like the neural tubes and the and TCE, um, that was the only one that really showed like an increase um, risk with increasing like categories ex of exposure, but really nothing else did. Um, they did adjust kind of for some, they wanted to adjust for other potential risk factors, um, but they really um, didn't have to adjust for all of them, just the, if their child sibling had reportedly had a birth defect, um, so that was kind of the only adjusted odds ratio that they used um, for this model. Um, but then again, that was only based on two exposed cases, so very small sample. 
when they adjusted for all the other potential risk factors, they really did not see effect on the odds ratio. Um, also, everything is unadjusted values that we're looking at. Um, they, they note that this study is unique It's um, because they thoroughly examine the associations between model drinking water contamination and the risk of developing these very specific birth defects and childhood cancers. Um, they say, as far as limitations, like I said before, very small numbers in these cases, um, and the wide confidence intervals for the odds ratios are very wide, so the precision isn't great. Um, they do note that this was a survey, you know, and it's not the best method for obtaining all this information, but it did seem like they made great efforts to actually verify all the information that they were being told, so it wasn't all just subjective. And they did have a pretty high participation rate, I mean, almost 80% um, during that entire time period, which is pretty impressive. Um, and then they also say that one of the limitations is obviously this was these interviews were con um, conducted very, you know, long time periods since the exposure, so 20, 37 years after the births of their kids. So, you know, recall can be a little mm -hmm. fuzzy um, and maybe some missing data uh, about potential risk factors that um, weren't reported. Um, and then water consumption habits, obviously, it's really hard for them to, to determine exactly how much they were drinking and showering. Um, so, you know, they, in conclusion, they, they say that the odds ratio, odds ratio, ratio is suggested association between first trimester exposure to TCE and benzene and neural tube defects. That was kind of the strongest. Um, they did have weaker associations between first trimester exposures to TCE, vinyl chloride, and DCE and child, um, cancers. Um, and they found no evidence suggestive of other associations between the outcomes um, and exposures. Um, yeah, and at the end they just say the study adds to scientific literature on health effects of exposures to these chemicals in drinking water and, you know, further studies could help um, guide future policy interventions and this is only one of many studies that they did that sounds like they put a lot of work into. Yeah, no, it, I mean they went down and they studied all sorts of exposure. So looking at sort of the, the most serious stuff, childhood cancers, a weak association, I'm not going to diminish that yeah. there wasn't any, but there was a weak association. Looking at neural tube deficits, it was there for the TCE mm -hmm. tract where they had wells of TCE in it, um, but really not much more. So maybe that was too blunt of a scope. Maybe what they just needed to look at is any sort of childhood association. So there was a second study done that looked at preterm births and gestational weights. And Adrian, on this last one, which sure. thing was it that was associated with the neural tube defects? It was water consumption or, uh, I think or so. where they lived? I think the water's consumption was estimated, although yeah. they, did a, they did a very good job at figuring out how much I mean, the average person would consume. They estimated an exposure based on those models, and it, I don't know if it's based I mean, on consumption. I was consumption wondering, was it the like, self-reported glasses of tap water? Which, yeah, 20 years. My kid is born thing. with spina bifida. Mm -hmm. Yes, it was contaminated. I drank lots of water, the recall bias. Yeah, it's like I said, like, how much water did you drink in medical school on like an average day? I mean, you're not going to remember that. Yeah. I mean, this is only like... Ten years later. If they tell me there was a chemical in the drinking fountains, yeah. Which was well known at this point. I took, I drank, I drank a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so, but they did a real more on mapping. You know, they said things like during hot weather, there was more mixing of certain wells and the concentrations went up. So they actually had like week to week or month to month levels of TCE, PCE in these wells, even though like people keep drinking out of them, which that part's a little bit odd, but now we have these papers that kind of fall back on. So maybe that's just too blunt of an in instrument to look at just neural tube deficits and cancer, because there's only a handful of cases. Maybe look at something that's more subtle and easier to measure on a bell-shaped curve, like birth weight. Mm -hmm. And so Rachel's going to look at sort of that same set of kids and cohorts with sort of a more subtler outcome. Mm -hmm. So um, this paper, the, the background is essentially the same. Thank you, Adrian. Believe in the details of that. Um, but the purpose of this study was mm. to uh, determine if maternal exposures to the contaminants in drinking water um, were associated with preterm birth, 
fetal growth retardation, um, and they're measuring this by reduced mean birth, birth weight, term low birth weight, and small for gestational age. Um, so they were, they categorized them in exposed versus unexposed. Um, they used the same modeling um, as the previous study. Um, so I won't go over any of that detail, but um, their inclusion criteria were live singleton births, 28 to 47 weeks, um, had to weigh more than 500 grams, and this was between 1968 and 1985, um, and mothers who had lived at Camp Lejeune when they delivered. Um, so there were 11,896 births that um, met this criteria. Um, and essentially their exposure assessment, that entire section, um, will be similar to Adrian's also, um, as well as having a similar table. Um, if you look at table one there, those are the respectors for adverse pregnancy outcomes. Um, so I will move on to um, the discussion of these results. Um, so they did computer modeling of this drinking water system, um, and they ended up with odds ratios of 1.5 and 1.3. Um, that was for small for gestational age and to term low birth weight, um, respectively. And they also showed a reduced mean birth weight of seven, uh, yeah, 78.3 grams, um, and this was the highest exposure category to TCE. Um, so uh, they also found an odds ratio for the second trimester exposures to TCE, um, and the association with term low birth weight, and that odds ratio was 1.6. Um, TCE did not increase the risk for preterm birth, though. Um, and they talk about a few other studies that were um, consistent with their findings. So there was one done in um, Woodburn, Massachusetts, um, as well as New Jersey, and there was a Finnish study also um, with some similar uh, odds ratios uh, to these second trimester exposures. Um, so they did, there's also a study of um, trimester specific exposures to air pollutants, um, and they found a strong um, risk in the second trimester for term low birth weight, um, as well as preterm birth. Um, for PCE, they had adjusted odds ratios of 1.3 and 1.5 for preterm birth, um, and the highest category, uh, the higher, highest exposure category was um, the entire pregnancy as well as the second trimester. Um, respectively. So um, the entire pregnancy had an odds ratio of 1.3 and the second trimester had an odds ratio of 1.5. Um, the exposure to PCE did not increase the risk for small for gestational age or um, term low birth weight. Um, it, also didn't, it also didn't reduce the mean birth weight either. Um, and so this mean birth weight finding, um, it's consistent with a previous study. Um, which found an adjusted um, adjusted mean difference in birth weight of 15.2 grams uh, for mothers that were exposed um, to PCE around the time of conception. Um, they also found that benzene did not increase the risk for small for gestational age or preterm birth. Um, they talk about some confounding factors here. Um, they didn't have as much contact with uh, the families in this study as in the study that Adrian talked about. So they didn't assess for things like smoking, that is a known risk factor for a low birth weight, um, uh, as well as preterm birth and small for gestational age. Um, but they do talk about how these um, these exposure categories would have had to have a 40% increase in smoking in order to account for the uh, statistical difference that they saw. So um, they argue that their, uh, their findings are still real, even if you um, don't even you don't account for other risk factors like smoking. Um, there are some other limitations, um, like the housing records on these bases. There are also women who delivered off base or moved before they delivered, um, and they didn't do the same extensive interviews um, to try and find any of those women. Um, and they only modeled residential exposures to drinking water contaminants, um, since the drinking water exposures could only occur during daily they could have any daily activity all over the base. So presumably they could have drank water from, from anywhere on the base um, on the base besides their home. They're only looking at their home exposures in these um, modeling, um, in the way that they modeled it. So in any case, 
Their conclusions were that they did find an association between um, TCE and small for gestational age as well as um, term low birth weight and reduced mean birth weight. Um, benzene was associated with term low birth weight um, and PCE was associated with preterm birth. Um, these exposure, the exposure for TCE was highest during, or the um, exposure response relationship was highest during the second trimester, um, as well as for PCE, that was a second trimester exposure, and then benzene um, was the entire pregnancy. And those are the conclusions that they were able to come to from this information. All right, so good. So they looked something subtler, birth weights, found that probably uh, an association with TCE, mostly perhaps mm -hmm. both agents involved. So, yeah, so living there and drinking the water and bathing in it probably was a risk factor for both that and perhaps, still don't know, uh, increased risk of cancer. What does that mean, like, for little kids they were born slightly less big? Does that end up mattering? Yeah. Well, I don't know. good. Well, it's always, you know, at some point it does carry our additional health risk, but it's kind of like, uh, you know, diabetics and small gestational age and things like that. But yeah, you're right. The real adverse health outcomes over the lifetime, maybe there's an increase of neurotrib deficits, maybe there's an increase in cancer, but boy, it's a small, subtle uh, signal it's hard to pick up on. Um, for the last paper, though, I'm going to look at the Marines themselves and the Navy uh, that were exposed to water at Camp Lejeune. And this also was a retrospective cohort study. So I pretty much told you, you know, about the two wells and where people lived. Remember, uh, the PERC was in the TT wells and the TCE was in the HP wells. Um, and basically what they looked at is there are over 150,000 Marines and Navy personnel, which they both be called Marines, throughout the study that were on active duty from 75 to 85 that were stationed at Camp Lejeune. And since you really can't compare it to national norms, because there's this phenomenon called the healthy soldier phenomenon, you know, you would figure if you're able to run 30 miles with a 50-pound pack and 110 weather, you're probably in pretty good shape. Um, they compared them to the Marines at Camp Pendleton in California, which didn't have contamination with their wells. And they went through a variety of vital statistics um, Department of Defense, Social Security Administration, R&R, National Death Index. And they use the same monthly uh, highs and lows of the PERC and the TCE and the wells to gauge how much these folks may be um, exposed to. Now remember, people who are working out, they're not at home drinking all the time, so they're probably even harder to gauge how much they're really exposed to at home, but that's the best estimate they have. So, and then they followed them up, even though they were exposed during that 10-year period, they followed them up from 1980, essentially, through December of 2008. And they did what we usually look for in death certificates, which is a standardized mortality ratio, which is similar to the odds ratio, which is similar to the hazardous ratio, is how many more people died than you expected for the cohort you're looking at. Um, and skipping right to their um, results. Um, so the two cohorts, Pendleton and Lejeune, had similar demographics. Not surprisingly, they were fresh marine recruits of about the same age and the same time. Um, over a quarter of all deaths in both cohorts, surprisingly, was due to cancer and cardiovascular diseases. Uh, so this is still a relatively young population Comparing them to the U.S. mortality rates, um, however, most of their SMRs were less than one, therefore showing the healthy soldier or healthy veteran uh, effect. Uh, but for some specific cancers, they uh, observed SMRs above one uh, in the Camp Lejeune cohort. Uh, kidney cancer, the SMR was 1.16. Confidence intervals did cross one. Multiple myeloma, it was 1.05. Confidence intervals did cross one. Cervical cancer, 1.03. Confidence intervals did cross one. And interestingly, if you look at something long enough with as many variables, at Camp Pendleton, um, the SMR for bladder cancer 
was higher. Again, confidence intervals did cross one. Some of these ends are like two cases, right? Five cases, yeah. right? I mean, it's a pretty healthy group, and there just wasn't a lot of cases of some of these diseases. But if you just look at it like, oh, I was at Camp Pendleton and I had leukemia, or I had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and then you start talking to people and you hear more and more people had that disease, if you make enough phone calls, you find out there were like 68 people with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and you start worrying there was something there that caused the problem. But when you actually do the comparisons, it doesn't turn out to be as dramatic. There's an increased SMR, but not statistically important. There was a bunch of diseases of secondary interest they looked at, and again, SMR is greater than one. Prostate cancer was actually pretty high, um, and it did not cross one uh, for uh, Camp Lejeune. Uh, ALS, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, did cross one, but it was higher. Uh, SMR for uh, that soft tissue sarcoma was elevated at uh, Camp Lejeune. Cancer of the larynx was elevated at Camp Pendleton. So if you look at big databases, you'll find different things here and there. But when the SMR, when the confidence intervals don't cross one, you have to conclude that statistically there isn't an increased risk. Um, and they weren't able to look at it for things like aplastic anemia and other anemias because there just wasn't enough cases, as we mentioned. Um, the last table, table five, compares the mortality, not just the incidence of these diseases, but mortality, um, and therefore hazard ratios, not incident ratios. Uh, for all the cancers, and it actually was higher at Camp Lejeune. It just touched one. The hazard ratio was 1.1 with a confidence interval of 1 to 1.2 for all those diseases of primary interest, and was elevated for kidney cancer, uh, liver cancer, esophageal cancer, multiple myeloma, leukemia, Hodgkin's cervical cancer, um, but not bladder cancer or not Hodgkin's lymphoma. So several of these diseases were, were higher, but maybe not statistically so. Um, there's a lot of information about analysis trends that I think are kind of deep in the weeds of statistics. But um, they were talking at the end, and a nice couple of things in the discussion worth mentioning. Um, the daily inhalation exposure to TCA, TCE probably was between 2.2 and 9.5 milligrams per day in occupational settings where they've actually monitored people. And, but they calculated that a marine in training under warm weather conditions could drink between one and two quarts of water per hour. So when they go back and bow calculate if they consumed that many liter equivalents of essentially eight liters of water per day while they were training, they actually got above what would have been an occupational exposure of a tri cleaner would have been. So that's different than I think when you and I talk about casual exposure at home. I mean, we're not drinking eight liters of water a day at home making coffee, tea, and, and other things. Um, a meta-analysis that was done by the EPA evaluated any TCE exposure and a risk ratio was higher for kidney cancer to non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and liver cancer. Um, and uh, so... Unfortunately, the upshot of what all this is is, is now these cancers are associated with uh, being exposed to Camp Lejeune. Um, Policy-wise, what happened recently is that the VA and the DOD has decided that any of these long lists, I think there's 13 or 14 of these diseases, that if you had them and you spent, I think it was at least 30 days at Camp Lejeune, you were covered under the VA. So that's probably a good thing because it's good to have health care coverage. It doesn't sort of admit that they were the cause of it or statistically anything else, but just basically saying um, this is not going to hopefully become the Agent Orange of the, the day where we argued for years and years and years about who was covered and who was not covered, was it real or was it, was it not real. I think there seems to be evidence from this and the study we didn't cover a little bit from Woodburn um, that these exposure to these things are not good for you. Probably not good if you're exposed in utero. It's probably not good if you're exposed drinking eight quarts of water a day while you're in training, even if it's only for a year of your life um, or less. And so the health effects of these, although not dramatically different from the general population, perhaps higher than a similar encampment where this wasn't in the wells at Pendleton, is enough to spur the government and the appropriate regulatory agents to say, look, we're going to take care of you if you have any of these diseases, everything's covered. 
Um, and that's sort of the bottom line that comes from it. Um, could these things be associated with it? Sure, plausibility is there. These are chemicals, it's in the water. Um, it shouldn't be in the water. The rest of the population have the Clean Water Act and all over water systems measure trihalomethanes in our water. You get an annual water report from them, which you may toss out in the, and when you get it. But if you read it carefully, on the back page, it'll show you the levels of all these things in your own water systems. So it's good to follow. My guess is they're all negative because they wouldn't continue to operate wells if they were above the parts per million or parts per billion of the regulations for each of these chemicals. They need to like, take those wells offline. The unfortunate part is they didn't take these wells offline um, there in um, Camp Lejeune, and now I think they just have to own up to the fact that they've exposed a generation of Marines who work there and, and live there and train there to this chemical, and they have to take care of their healthcare needs from, from now on. So I think I'll finish there. There was another paper about Woodburn that I think we decided to skip. Woodburn was a different environmental contamination of the wells there, which led in part to uh, the book and the movie, A Civil Action, but is also the same chemicals. And anyone wants to go back and read the book better than watching the movie, I think you'll get some information about the exposure uh, that went on in those places. It also was not definitively linked to anything specific. So questions from anybody, our colleagues in Utah? Zing. I don't know if I saw in my paper if mm. anyone else in theirs. Mm. Was there any, I always have a hard time translating, you know, hazard ratio of 1.07 that is a P value that's significant. How many excess cases does that translate into for any of these? It wasn't in my paper where they said, we then estimate that per million people there would be X number of excess cases based on this. No, yeah, I think it's hard. I think the SMR rates get at that. You know, there's if we have an SMR how ratio, how many die? extra people would get that disease or die from because the mortality ratios? How would die from that disease um, as a result of the exposure? So each one above one is an additional percent excess. Um, the odds and hazard ratios are, are different, but basically similar enough that you want it to be a true association. You want the confidence intervals to up be above one at the higher and lower end. And really, in most of these cases, it failed to do that. Yeah. All right, well, that's the, the Oregon Poison Center on this occupation and environmentally-based topic for a change on uh, uh, Journal Club for September, and we will see you all next time.